0: with a super special announcement. Before we get into today's episode, I started beyond the pearls podcast in May of 2021. And now almost two years later, we're coming up to our 100th episode. I mean, I can't believe it. And you know what I'm getting a little palpitations right here a little, you know, SVT supraventricular tachycardia. I can't help it. I always drop these pearls, you know, reaching the 100th episode is a huge milestone. And to celebrate it, I wanted to do something special, which is give away digital copies of my latest book. And what's the title? It's going to be Morning Report, The Subspecialties, of course, Beyond the Pearls. And I made the little hand gesture, but you can't see it. So if you're hearing this, check the show notes and learn more about the contest. And click the link to get entered. And you can be one of six winners to receive a copy of the book. Thank you all so much for listening. And now let's get back to the show. Hi, I'm Dr. Raj and welcome to the beyond the pearls podcast. And today, I think I'm in a endocrine mood. So what do you think students should I talk about diabetes? What about hypo and hyperthyroidism? Nah, you don't think that? Well, you know what, let me just call it for us today. I'm in a adrenal mood. Are you in an adrenal mood? so i think today's topic is going to be something called primary adrenal insufficiency what is it how do we treat it how do we diagnose it and of course you know i'm only going to be talking about this because it is triple star high yield for the usmle and the board exams but you know before we go diving into primary adrenal insufficiency you gotta walk down anatomy and physiology lane, you know, that's one of my favorite streets to like walk on. So I do want to say when we talk about the adrenal gland, I mean, where is it? Well, they sit on top of each pole of the kidney. Uh, the adrenal gland is kind of divided into two broad areas, there is the cortex, which is like 80 to 85% of the adrenal gland. And of course, then we have the medulla. When we think about the cortex, you know, I divide it into three main parts, What are those parts, And you know what i do love saying these words it's divided into the most outer layer of the cortex which is the zona glomerulosa and uh, who can remember what hormone that makes i mean why are you folks so smart you know yes it makes aldosterone the middle part is called the zona fasciculata and they it makes cortisol and the inner layer of the cortex is the zona reticularis and they make the adrenal androgens right but the other broad part is going to be the adrenal medulla and it will secrete two hormones. We're gonna call those adrenaline and noradrenaline, uh, respectively known as epinephrine and norepinephrine. But that being said, that was a, just a brief stroll down the lane. So, what is primary adrenal insufficiency and what are gonna be those signs and symptoms? And, you know, to answer that question, those signs and symptoms really depend upon three main things. The first thing is gonna be the rate. And the extent of the loss of adrenal function. I'm bringing this up because when you have primary adrenal insufficiency, you don't wipe out the entire adrenal gland in one shot. I guess you theoretically could, but you know what I mean. It, it, it really depends on how fast is the damage happening. Is it all three layers of the cortex, or maybe it's just affecting at one point the fasciculata, but not the glomerulosa yet? So it really depends, you know. Number two, well, it really also depends on what is the mineralocorticoid production? Is it preserved? Is it not preserved? And how are we going to know if the mineralocorticoid is functioning or not, or do you have aldosterone or not? What electrolyte do you think we could look at to kind of get a good hint about it? yeah you mean once again you folks are so awesome potassium levels right so aldosterone and potassium is kind of like peanut butter and jelly you know so when you have lots and lots of aldosterone i mean potassium levels are going to be what super 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 low potassium levels can be very low in the serum you know and if you don't have a lot of uh, aldosterone potassium levels are definitely going to be on on the higher side they're going to be on the higher side so it's nice to look at You know potassium to see if mineralocorticoid production is preserved or not and the third thing that influences the signs and symptoms of adrenal insufficiency is the degree of you know physical stress that happens to that patient so when we talk about the onset of adrenal insufficiency it's often very gradual i want to stress that and it may go undetected until an illness or other stress uh precipitates something called an adrenal crisis so of course I sense it. someone's going to ask me, what is an adrenal crisis? So it's an acute life-threatening condition and it really just to break it down occurs because there's not enough cortisol. The predominant manifestation of adrenal crisis is going to be shock. This is where they come to my medical ICU and I tend to manage these patients. Now, these patients are going to be refractory to IV fluids. They're going to be on pressors. But you know, patients often have non-specific symptoms, such as they could present with anorexia, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, weakness, fatigue, lethargy, fevers, confusion, of course, sometimes even coma. So now I really want to talk about etiologies. So what is gonna be the most common cause of primary adrenal insufficiency? Let me just use this word right now. Addison's disease. So primary adrenal insufficiency, also known as Addison's disease, is an autoimmune destruction of all layers of the adrenal cortex, leading to progressive mineralocorticoid, glucocorticoid, and adrenal androgen deficiency. So the most common cause, if you didn't catch it, is autoimmune destruction. And if you have this autoimmune destruction of all three layers, you have primary adrenal Insufficiency, we call that Addison's disease. I really wanted to break that down again to make sure you understand it. So, uh, approximately ninety percent of patients will have twenty-one hydroxylase antibodies, and approximately fifty percent will develop another autoimmune endocrine disorder in their lifetime. For example, primary hypoparathyroidism, like a Hashimoto's thyroiditis, primary ovarian insufficiency, hypoparathyroidism, or type one diabetes, and there's a term I want to use right now called autoimmune polyglandular syndrome. So of course, as the name implies, you'll have autoimmune disease of many endocrine glands in the body. And you know what, I want to throw out a a bonus question here. Who could tell me what skin lesion is associated with autoimmune polyglandular syndrome? Ah, man, I thought I got you on this one. You're right. the answer is bitiligo. So please think about that. And you know, before we stop talking about ideology, we also say that celiac disease, you know, also occurs in increased frequency with people with primary adrenal insufficiency, which shouldn't be surprising because celiac disease is loaded with antibodies, <laughs> which ones anti anti endomysial So all these things, uh, put some them at risk of having celiac if you have these primary adrenal insufficiency. And you know, I'm in a dermatology mood, everyone. So who could tell me what skin lesion is associated with celiac disease? Man, I don't believe it. You you folks are yelling out the answers here. It's only a podcast. Um, You're right, it's uh, dermatitis herpetiformis. Very good, everyone. So you know, what a couple more things about etiology primary adrenal insufficiency can also be caused by infections. It can be caused by infiltrated disorders. Now who can list off some infiltrated disorders? Yes, granuloma is very good. So we can think about things like sarcoidosis. Yes, hemochromatosis can do it amyloidosis when we think about proteins, but lymphoma can do it. But on that note, metastatic disease involving the adrenals rarely leads to adrenal insufficiency, even if both adrenal glands are involved. Bilateral adrenal hemorrhage, hmm, now that can present as acute, acute adrenal insufficiency and should be considered if a patient suddenly develops unexpected hypotension. Now, what would be some risk factors for getting that hemorrhage? Well, you have things like protein C, protein S deficiency. You could be on anticoagulation with heparin, coumadin, you know, these direct thrombin inhibitors, these factor 10 A inhibitors. People with disseminated intravascular coagulopathy, DIC can get it. And when would I think about it being an ICU doctor? Well, people with sepsis can develop that. Now, you folks want to question, are you in a questioning mood? (laughs) All right, who can tell me what is Waterhouse-Frederidgeon syndrome? Yeah, I went there. I went for classic step one right there. (laughs) So this is adrenal failure due to bleeding into the adrenal glands commonly caused by severe bacterial infections. And who could tell me was the classic bacteria that they commonly associated with this on the USMLE step one? Yeah, Neisseria meningitis. You folks are awesome. So let's start talking about clinical features, okay? So primary adrenal insufficiency is a life-threatening disorder that often presents with an insidious onset of symptoms. What does that mean, everyone? a gradual onset because it's gradual it's really really tough to make the diagnosis it could be a challenge but it also may present as adrenal crisis you know we defined that already often precipitated by an acute event like sepsis or the initiation of now here's a good pearl from the boards thyroid hormone replacement in a patient with unrecognized chronic ai so remember always give the cortisol first and then you want to replace the thyroid okay so um it's important to know that ecth levels are high because of diminished adrenal cortisol production and this leads to decreased negative feedback to the hypothalamus pituitary axis okay although not present in all patients classic board right here skin hyperpigmentation from stimulation of melanocytes by the high levels of melanocyte stimulating hormone, which has the same precursor molecule as ACTH. And of course, ACTH is high in people with primary adrenal insufficiency. This hyperpigmentation of the skin is considered a hallmark of primary AI. So let's start talking about diagnosis a little bit here, folks. So when I think about what's the initial evaluation of primary AI, I think of three things. Number one, measurement of an 8 a.m. Serum total cortisol. Why It's because remember cortisol is diurnal at nighttime. Cortisol is going to be what the lowest in the morning. It's going to be what the highest. So an 8 a.m. Serum total cortisol should be on the higher side. What else would I check an ACTH level? Because what do you want to know? Is it a primary problem? Is it a secondary problem? You know, so you really wanna know what's the ACTH level going to be. Uh, also, if necessary, you could use something called respond to ACTH stimulation. And of course, some of my clinicians out there are saying, are you referring to the cosentropin stimulation test? Yes, you know what I mean? In some cases you might need to do this. So primary AI is confirmed by the combination, of course history, physical is important, of a low serum cortisol, in a very high serum ACTH levels. So, additional evaluation may include assessment for autoimmune adrenalitis. How do you do that? Check for those 21 hydroxylase antibodies. If necessary, you may consider a CT of the adrenal glands, especially if the antibodies are absent. So, you're looking for other things besides autoimmune. So, how do you treat it? You tell me. (laughs) So if you have primary AI, both glucocorticoid and mineralocorticoid therapies are required for treatment of primary AI. The preferred glucocorticoid is hydrocortisone, and you do have to take this two to three times per day. So adherence to several daily dosing of hydrocortisone can be challenging. So what do we do? Sometimes we cheat. We say, well, here's some prednisone. And, you know, that could be a once daily dosing. The principle of replacement is to administer the higher doses in the morning, because that's when, you know, cortisol levels tend to be the higher, and to try to avoid replacement in the evening, even though we do it, and of course, evening cortisol is going to be on the lower side. And you just got to be careful not giving too much steroids, because if you give too much over replacement of glucocorticoids, well, you're going to develop what's called iatrogenic Cushing syndrome, iatrogenic Cushing syndrome. So of course I didn't forget our friends the mineralocorticoids produced by my zona glomerulosa and the replacement for mineralocorticoids is achieved with a once daily dosing usually by fludrocortisone. So one of the important parts to remember is that patients with primary AI you know they cannot amount a, an appropriate increase in cortisol with an illness of some kind. So we give instructions of what to do during an air quote sick day there's some sick day rules and we do this to uh to prevent adrenal crisis so all patients with primary ai should be counseled to wear a medical alert you know tag or bracelet at all times and they should also be prescribed an emergency kit that includes a high dose intramuscular steroid so they could boom inject themselves so You know, patients with untreated AI, adrenal insufficiency, primary AI, and hypothyroidism should always receive what first? The glucocorticoids first to prevent precipitation of that adrenal crisis when you do get the thyroid hormone. And there is a syndrome out there called Schmidt syndrome. Schmidt syndrome is the combination of autoimmune primary adrenal insufficiency Addison's disease with autoimmune hypothyroidism and or type one diabetes. So with all those things being said, what do you think? Should we do a a practice question together? All right, let's do it. So how about this 30 year old woman is evaluated for fatigue and abdominal pain for four months. So it seems like it's gradual insidious and onset. She's lost some weight around uh, 1.5 pounds, which is 2.3 kilograms during that time. She has no medical problems and takes no meds. On exam, the blood pressure is 110 over 70 sitting and 90 over 60 standing, low orthostatic. The pulse rate is 70 sitting and it shoots up to 90 when standing, orthostatic. Uh, otherwise, the remaining vitals are normal. BMI is on the lower side at 19 and the patient has been intensely tan skin and hyperpigmented buccal mucosa and the palmar creases are also hyperpigmented and visual field testing is normal. So they got a couple labs, you know, and the ones that jump out at me are the sodium is low at 132, the potassium is elevated at 5.6. The cortisol and they do that in the morning, it's a serum, a serum total cortisol is two. And I'll tell you one thing, that is pretty low. It doesn't get lower than that. (laughs) Well, I guess it technically can, but that's very, very low, especially in the morning. And they did a ACTH level and it came back very close to 600. And I'll tell you that that is a very, very high ACTH level. So I guess my question to you folks is, which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? So let me give you some choices and then we can walk through this, okay? Is the choice A, do a cosentropin stimulation test. B, give some hydrocortisone and fludrocortisone. C, do a pituitary MRI. D, why not? prednisone? E, measure um, serum aldosterone levels. Okay. So uh, what seems to be the right answer in this case? Let's just kind of walk through this. And maybe we can bump into it. In this case, is this patient kind of presenting like there may be a primary adrenal insufficiency? The answer is yes, it's definitely gradual, it's an insidious and onset. There's some weight loss. There's some poorly defined abdominal pain patients, you know, having orthostatic blood pressure in the labs, really a super, super low cortisol very high ACTH levels kind of like that combination of primary adrenal insufficiency findings. And let's look at the choices, you know, should we measure serum aldosterone, I gotta tell you, you know, unless I'm working up a con syndrome, I haven't really checked a lot of aldosterone, whether it be in the urine or in the serum. And the answer is no, I don't think you need to do that in this case. And I think one reason of that is that, I mean, what lab values implies that aldosterone really isn't doing its thing or you have low levels of aldosterone. You got it, The potassium's high, right? And the sodium is gonna be what? Low, and that's what we see here. So definitely, of course, with the high potassium, Get that ECG. Make sure you this patient's not going to have some kind of arrhythmia while, before you work this patient up. You know, so I wouldn't do E. I don't think you need to get serum aldosterone levels. C uh, pituitary MRI. I don't think you need to do that for one reason. Right, this is sounds like the problems where in the adrenals itself. The problem's not going to be in the brain. You know what I mean? Because the ACTH levels are what high you know, so and they mentioned visual field testing is normal. So I don't think doing a pituitary MRI is the way to go. So C is wrong. Doing a stim test, you know, it's always tempting, right? When you take board exams, everyone's always like, what is the gold standard, you know, and, you know, I think in this case, given the history, the physical, and more importantly, the cortisol is two, that's, that's pretty low. You know what I mean? I think that you know, if the cortisol was a little bit higher in you, just were kind of wondering, sure, maybe you could do a, a stim test. But when the cortisol is, you know, less than three, you I mean most guidelines and board review books will say you don't need to do a stim test? It really wouldn't change your management. So A is off. So it really comes down to B and D. You want to do hydrocortisone plus fludrocortisone, like a glucocorticoid plus a mineralocorticoid or D just give some prednisone and you know you already survived the entire podcast you know what the answer is going to be the answer is going to be B the preferred treatment of primary adrenal insufficiency is hydrocortisone two or three times a day you know and fludrocortisone giving it once a day so that's going to be the right answer and in this case once again the most common cause of you know primary adrenal insufficiency is autoimmune destruction right so you know before we say goodbye to Each other in this podcast, I want to give you my what I call, you know, Dr. Raj's Beyond the Pearls about primary adrenal insufficiency. Number one, once again, the most common cause is autoimmune adrenalitis, leading to progressive mineralocorticoid, glucocorticoid, and adrenal endogen deficiency. Glucocorticoid and mineralocorticoid therapies are required for treatment of primary adrenal insufficiency. And my last little pearl is patients with adrenal insufficiency require instructions in a sick day as far as regarding glucocorticoid dosing to prevent that adrenal crisis, wear that medical alert tag and have those steroids in an IM injector just in case. And you know what? I hope you enjoyed that. I was in the mood for some endocrinology. I hope you enjoyed my pearls today and stay tuned for another Beyond the Pearls podcast. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.